back, everybody, to Get the Let Out with Dr. Chuck Stead. We have been uh, going through a series of episodes about toxic legacy. And I have to say that some of the material is very challenging and difficult to hear because this is where causation meets the ultimate result, which is really some terrible and difficult challenges for the people that live in the areas where this toxic dumping has been going on. You say, well, it happened, you know, way back in, you know, 10, 20, 15, 30 years ago. And you start to come to realize it doesn't matter how long ago it was. It has an effect and the effect continues as long as there's pollutants in the soil and in the air. So this is a very important subject. You know, we talk a lot about environmental change and green legislation and things like that. This goes even beyond what we can do today. It, it reaches back into the past and says, you know, that to some, in some way we're going to have to make atonement for some of the, the terrible mistakes of the past or we're going, to, we're going to have to live with the consequences. So on that somewhat somber note, Dr. Chuck, what are we going to talk about today? On that happy note... <laughs> We're going to be looking at the episode in Toxic Legacy that speaks to a sense of place about the Ramapos of the Turtle Clan, their love of home, which, of course, has been poisoned by Ford. And I think, could you say that they are the most directly affected by what Ford did? Well, a lot of people are, are affected. It depends on how close you are to where the material was dumped. Probably the Ramapos more so because, well, the Ramapos of Ringwood live right at a site that was dumped on. They literally live on a Superfund site. There are communities of people in America that live on Superfund sites. Their commonality is they're either indigenous or black Americans or black Indians. Okay. Take it away, Dr. Chuck. Thank you, Joe. So on Tuesday, October 4th morning edition of The Record, there was a headline. It read like this, wedded to the land for better or worse, Ramapos call mountain home. Below the headline was a large color portrait of Paul Van Dunk, a diabetes patient who'd lost a leg to the disease, sitting on his outdoor bench with a framed photo of his daughter, Pauline, whose death to cancer left behind her two children. Staff writers Mary Jo Layton and Barbara Williams worked on this particular installment, which puts a personal face on the victims of toxic legacy. Punctuated with Thomas Franklin's photographs of families and children and elders telling their story of survival against great odds, the narrative reveals a people determined to hold their place, indebted to their forebearers and focused on recovery. But this will not be a romanticized reinvention of their culture, so much as a reclaiming of their story. Coming to terms with one's own narrative is the hard road to recovery. For Paul Van Dyke, it may include moving off the land of his ancestors in order to leave something to his descendants. He says, quote, my dream, if I had the money, would be just to get out of here and take my grandchildren as far away as I could. End quote. The text offers a portrait of the community with ramshackled houses heated with wood-burning stoves alongside newer structures with satellite dishes, a place where native foraging for rabbits and woodchucks is augmented with the aid of SUVs and cell phones. 
Recognized by the state of New Jersey for their native lineage, the federal government hasn't acknowledged their heritage. One is left to believe that this is linked to the stigmatization of the Ramapos. As Phelan Van Dunk, a single mother of four, has noted, their heritage can be hard to embrace. Jobs are hard to come by, even in the local fast food chains and gas stations. As she has said, quote, you can't get anywhere because of your name, the Van Dunk name. It has been given this reputation of being ignorant. You might as well just say what they're really saying. Barbaric. Initially, many of the Ramapos, so distrusting of government, kept quiet about the paint sludge on their property. Leighton and Williams reported that only a few in the neighborhood indicated to officials at the EPA that sludge had turned up in their yards. As Roger DeGroat tells it, the discovery of toxins could well lead to condemnation of the property. As he says, quote, what happens if they come in and find our houses and yards so polluted that they condemn them? Then, then where do we go? We can't afford to live anywhere else, and I haven't heard any promises that they will pay to move us anywhere else. End quote. Leighton and Williams make note that the Ramapos had retained the Alabama branch of the Johnny Cochran firm as well as Robert F. Kennedy's firm, but had yet to file suit. Jan Barry noted that once Brad Campbell made his formal request to U.S. Attorney of New Jersey, Chris Christie at the time, that law firms took a speculative interest when they heard about that request. As Jan Barry says, by midweek of the Toxic Legacy series hitting the streets, the DEC held a press conference to announce that this was going to be taken care of. And then all kinds showed up, attorneys from Cochrane to Kennedy, members of Congress, state politicians, all kinds then showed up. Regardless of the attention, the community remained skeptical of genuine compensation. Linda DeGroat told reporters, if they would help us relocate, we would move. Her memories of picking elderberries with her granddaddy for wine that he made, her love of the warm, familiar sense of place, the security of knowing that the door was always open to someone in need, was challenged by the idea of escaping the contamination she suspects took the life of her grandson, Colin. In 2001, Colin passed on from a rare bone cancer, Ewing's sarcoma. Her family was still mourning his passing when his older cousin, Pauline Wright, also died of cancer. Paul Van Dunk carries on with his wife, Sylvia, and looks after the surviving members of their family. Sylvia tells us, I was born here and I would like to die here if it weren't for all the stuff that's around us. By stuff, she's referring to the paint sludge as well as the high voltage power lines overhead, the open pit mines, and the methane gas venting up through their backyard. Like many other communities of color, the Ramapos live with industrial waste and excess, the downside of a highly lucrative extraction production industry. With the exception of the big casino-funded reservation sites like Mohican Sun in Connecticut, some of the worst industrial dumping grounds and toxic industries are located on Indian reservations or deep in urban ghetto populations. Wayne Mann, a spokesman for the community, was sympathetic in hearing of Ramapo's attachment to their homeland. He speaks of the heritage of long-held family traditions, of the Ramapos who worked in the early mines, 
as he said, even before New Jersey was a state, we worked those mines. With more cleanups called for, man wonders if he has made too great a sacrifice in staying behind. Having buried over 30 family members and watched others leave the area, he refuses to leave himself. The record noted, quote, as a boy, man played at Sludge Hill, a slope off Bandunk Lane, where he smeared the purple streaked sludge on his face when the kids played cowboys and Indians. The children even rode down the slick four or five on a hood of a car, sledding in July. Man blames Ford for the community's illnesses, the asthma, the diabetes, and the cancer. He considers Ford to be nothing more than murderers. He watched as Ford and the EPA agreed to returning for a fifth attempt at a cleanup, but he expressed little faith that the majority of the sludge will be removed, not with indicators such as the discovery of antimony, a metal that causes heart and lung problems being found in Angie Van Dunk's yard with levels a hundred times federal safety standards. As Mann says bitterly of Ford, quote, we were like specimens to them. Up the road from Angie's place, Mike Stefanik watched the runoff of a stream laced with benzene across from his driveway. He remembered seeing haulers dump loads of sludge and other automobile castoffs to the woodlands around his home. He led EPA officials on tours of the contamination. Stefanik has little faith that Ford will ever come to full recovery of this pollution. His daughter, Christy, would like to leave with her little girl, Angel, and find a place that is reminiscent of their beloved Ramapos, somewhere perhaps upstate. Christy completed her high school years and is not a part of the troubling statistics that indicate 23% of American Indian and black students drop out of Lakeland Regional High School, serving Ringwood area, that is while fewer than 2% of white students have ever dropped out. For many years, social workers have claimed that poor school attendance was an indication of a weak family structure among the Ramapos. The community blames learning disabilities on elevated lead levels found in the sludge on their property, while some say it is the result of the cycle of poverty and poor living conditions. Leighton and Williams reported that more than 400 people live in the 48 homes, approximately seven to 10 residents per structure. And these are not large housing units. Crowded home life, weak economy, industrial pollution, sickness and death, the community does not offer much in the way of hope. And yet the Ramapos hang on. But for the young, future hopes are linked to leaving the homeland. Jared Milligan, a six foot four inch young man was a Lakeland basketball team all-star. He was all-conference and all-region at Ramapo College. Whew. Jared's home is in an old mining building. His ancestors extracted ore from the deep earth, and his relatives scavenged the Ford sludge for copper and carburetors. He sees his future beyond the Ramapos. He says, quote, I've learned stuff here I would never have learned anywhere else, but I'm not sure I will come back. I just feel my time here is over. Milligan expresses the doubt that comes to young members of the community as they witness their elders declining. According to Wayne Mann, the Ramapos used to generally live into their 90s and some into their hundreds, and now folks are lucky to make it into their 50s or 60s. 
Native America relies on the guidance of elders, the bearers of tradition to teach their young. But as eldership gets younger and younger itself, the traditional guidance falls short. Or as Subchief Vin Man has observed, killing off the elders is just another way of killing off the nation. It's really a, it's a tragedy, okay? It's just a tragedy. It's the only way you can describe it. And if this were the end of it, that's all it would be, is a tragedy, an unresolved part of our history that cost the lives of many. But we have the ability to turn that around, to at least learn from these very sad and, and uh, very heartrending stories and to try to remake this world in a better way. And that's really, I mean, it sounds like pie in the sky and everything else, but that's what we got to do. That's our mission. That's why we're here, right? I mean, we're here to try to leave the place better than we found it. Yep. So what are some of the things that we can do in, in addition to voting? Obviously, that being, I think, really the most important what what are some of the things that the average person, Dr. Chuck, what could they do or how can they get involved to try to help with this? Well, I, I would say the, the first and foremost is, is self-education. They can simply learn more about the levels of exposures they're experiencing anywhere that they live. They can just learn more about that so that they can protect themselves. I mean, studies have shown uh, literally 30 years ago you could find elements of uh, particulate matter or, or, or parts per million of polychlorinated biphenyls, the PCBs I mentioned, in everybody's blood in America. Yeah. So the, the way that happens is it gets into the dust, it gets into the air, and you breathe it. You don't even have to be near a production plant. It just carries. Or you're eating something that has absorbed it, and it carries, and it doesn't go away. Now, the fact is, if we eat well, if we live a relatively healthy life, if we cut back on the damage that we do to our bodies personally, we survive these things. But also, if we know of a source point that we're living near and we avoid it or we shut it down, which means getting involved with your local politics so that you can make those changes, that would be the next step up. So first, you need to learn about what's what's so dangerous in your everyday life. And a big one that we talked about a few weeks ago was plastics. Just learning about these things so you can limit the levels of exposure that you have. And then learning about how you can make a difference in terms of policy so that you're not the only one that's limiting these exposures. You're limiting them for your community at large. And I think that too is a big part of it, understanding that you're in a community. Just getting back in this country to the idea that we're a community and that we take care of one another. Like you were just saying a moment ago, that we, we can do this, but it, it requires our involvement, not surrendering to the powers that be, not that old slogan, but becoming the powers that be, becoming the people, becoming the republic. This is doable. It's more doable than a lot of people give credit for. You know, what you're saying is so important, and it's not lost on me that in order for us to become a community again and to become the powers that be, we have to become unified again. We have to stop fighting with one another. We have to stop seeing each other as enemies. 
we have to stop thinking that in order for me to be right, you have to be wrong. As opposed to saying, in order for me to have this position, you know, you can have another position, which might be opposing to mine, might not be the same thing. But maybe if we could talk about it, if I could learn more about why you feel the way you feel about your position, and you could do the same with me, we might be able to find a place in the middle where we both can live, as opposed to a place where one of us has to die in order to, yeah. to, to, to yeah. go on. We, yeah. we, we really are a social creature, and becoming an alienated social creature is, is a threat to our existence. I think of, you know, e pluribus unum, in, in, in many, one. You know, we need to galvanize the many to think a bit more along the lines of the care and the health of the one. And I, I, I have faith. I haven't given up. I have faith because I've seen things work. But it, it requires just that. It requires work. And, um, and that's another thing. <laughs> a, lot, a, lot of, a lot of people don't seem to understand what work is anymore. <laughs> yeah. Work is your personal investment. You've got to be involved. And I think you also, in addition to that, it requires a keen sense of the truth. And, and in many ways, you know, people say, well, we live in a post-truth world right now. And to some very real extent, that's true. We do live in a post-truth world. People say things that are absolutely not true, blatantly not true. And the media expert, the pundit, the reporter says, well, we'll have to leave it there and then moves on to something else, you know, and as opposed to challenging it and saying, no, no, what you just said was actually not a fact. So we're going to have to start listening to our so-called leaders and the pundits and the media a lot more closely and then challenging them. There's a, a very popular uh, host right now on CNN and he's got a show on, uh, on POTUS, which is uh, Sirius XM Radio, POTUS 124. He does the morning show. It's Mike Smirkanish. And his whole brand is, I'm stuck here in the middle with you. I'm not a hard rightist. I'm not a hard leftist. I'm in the middle. I'm in the middle with you. And I, I wrote him a note a, a couple of weeks ago, and I said, Mike, just for the hell of it, could you please tell me where the middle is? I really, <laughs> I'd like to know that. Where, where is the middle? Where is it? Because I don't, I don't think you're anywhere near the middle, okay? <laughs> you might be on a line, you know, equidistant to, to a, a, an extreme rightist and an extreme leftist, but that's not the middle. That's not the middle. Okay. The middle, hopefully, is where the truth exists. And Did he write back to you? No, 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 no. I'm just, you know, I'm nobody. But, but the, the, you know, the, the point. No, that, you're not nobody. Well, you know, the, the thing is that I'm trying to make here to him, I probably am. You know, I mean, he he has a brand, and his brand is really dependent upon keeping both sides relatively healthy. Okay, so. Um, but you that know, presents, I think what you're talking about now, that presents the notion of the, the false equivalency. Yeah. There, there isn't, in issues of climate change, there is no false equivalency. In issues of industrial contamination that affects your reproductive systems, there is no false, I mean, that, that is just a false equivalency to call it an equivalency. It, it doesn't exist. Uh, the, the diethylhexyphthalate, which is the plasticizer that's in the paint, radically affects hormonal development and produces children who will continue to suffer until they die. 
I mean, this is this is a reality, and we know this, and studies have shown this, and science has shown this. But we got to have our, you know, polyvinyl chloride. We 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 got to have our diethyl healthy phthalate. We we got to have that stuff because industry tells us we have to have that, and because they spend an inordinate amount of money to keep us from learning those things, which it falls back on us. We have to have the responsibility of finding the truth and knowing that that's not a middle, like you're saying. Right. You see this all the time in the news. You see these despicable people, and it's the only way I can, I can describe them, being given town halls. No, come yeah. on, let's interview them and everything. Yeah. Let's, let's yep. make them look normal. Let's make them look like they are viable candidates, like they are deserving of our respect and our vote and our time. Let's listen to what they have to say. These liars, these charlatans, these carpetbaggers, this isn't normal. This isn't right. Donald Trump isn't equal on the opposite side to Joe Biden. Okay, you can disagree with Joe Biden's policy. That's fine. That's okay. We can duke that out. We can, we can fight those issues and policies and, and determine where we, we think we best should land. But to speak about Donald Trump as if he's some sort of a viable candidate, this, this disgusting human being who has violated women, who is convicted, a convicted sexual abuser, who speaks disgustingly and objectifying women and then says, well, it's just locker room talk. You know something? I'm 72 years old and I have managed to get through all my life without ever referring to a part of a woman's anatomy the way he does. So it's not locker room talk. It's just debasing another human being. I think what you're identifying is, is the <clears throat> fragmentation of what we once referred to as the social fabric of our republic. And it certainly has been fragmented. For me, listening to you talk this way, I am, I am reminded of the part that really has always puzzled me, and that is the radical evangelical support for this kind of stuff because there's nothing Christian about it. There is nothing Christian about this kind of behavior on the part of leaders who are literally grinding lives into the ground. You know, when you talk about the middle, let me just insert something here. Uh, remember Dick Gregory, the, the stand-up comedian? I sure do. He was great. He was great. And, and he and Bill Cosby originally rose to fame around the same time doing Ed Sullivan, who was also a wonderful variety show host. And Ed as we all know, produced so many important, fundamentally important cultural acts and some pretty goofy ones as well in, in the 60s. Uh, Dick Gregory had to take time off from his career because he got an illness that could not be diagnosed, and it, it literally crippled him. And uh, a nutritionist he goes to, a hippie nutritionist, it was suggested to him, and everybody else was failing him. And he said, maybe you're lactose intolerant. Maybe there's something in the lactose that, that you, your body objects to. Or maybe it's just the fact that milk isn't necessarily as pure as we think it is. And maybe there's some chemicals there. Why don't you just try going off milk? And he thought that was the silliest thing, but he had nothing to lose. And a couple of weeks later, he was fine. So he investigates it. He studies it. He researches it. And he finds out all the potentialities of drinking milk. Now, I drink I, I'm not advocating not drinking milk. I'm just saying this is what he found was going on with him in the 1960s. So he calls up Ed Sullivan and says, I want to come back. I'm good. I'm in good shape. Great. And Ed doesn't even vet the skit. He's going to do three minutes or three and a half minutes stand up on the Ed Sullivan show because he's returning. He's in good health. 
And what does he choose to do it on but milk the deadly poison? And it was a very funny skit because he shows his reaction to the idea that there could be something wrong with milk and how do you have cookies if you don't have milk. But he does this skit and he explains what was in milk that it was discovered that he was having a terrible reaction to. And that was the last time he was ever on network television. Isn't that something? That was the end of his known career up to that point, but it was the beginning of his truly, truly sensational activist's career. You know, I met him years later and we talked about this and he explained how this all had played out for him. But what an amazing thing, just an, an amazing story that this man had experienced this. And what was his crime on Ed Sullivan? He told the truth in a funny and entertaining way, mm -hmm. just like the Smothers Brothers used to do back in that era. That's you right. Know? That's right. And they got censored. They got <laughs> censored and eventually they got thrown off, too, you know, and yep. This is all proof positive about where the real power lies in this and, and probably other countries too. But what you said- But in our country, we can do something about it. Right, this. what you said at the top was, was, I think, so valid, you know, that we are the powers. We can be the power that be. Yes. We can take that back if we just realize our potential and if we pull ourselves together and if we start being a little bit more, you've got to think critically about what these people say. You can't just let them say it. And, yep. you know, you can't just say, well, you know, I like what he just said. These people are constantly trying to scare us, constantly trying to tell us what terrible next thing is going to happen to us if we don't vote for them. I would be very, very suspect of somebody who threatens you into voting for them. For years and years and years, the Republicans told us, oh, Obamacare, it's terrible, it's, good, it's horrible, it's this, it's that. Okay, what would you replace it with? Silence. Nothing. Never an answer. You can't just be against everything. You have to be for something. And if you have a candidate that just speaks about fear and destruction and being against something and not for something, I would be very suspect of that person. I would ask them, what is your solution? Be detailed, because we already have a detailed solution right now in Obamacare that's working. So let me hear what, what you would replace that with. And until they give you a solid, bona fide answer that can be analyzed as being sound and true, you have to reject them. I mean, yeah. even Obama himself said, listen, if you can come up with a better idea, I'll vote for it. I'll support yeah. it. It's that simple. Stop allowing them to scare you away from these issues that you have to, that your participation and commitment to is absolutely essential because that's when we lose. That's when they win and that's when the power remains with them and far, far away from us. I don't know. It seems so damned easy and yet in another, it just seems so far away. We just, we just got to keep at it. Solution takes relentless attention. You can't be there one week and not the next. You got to be right. in it. You got to be in it, you know, constantly yep. all the time. You got to be in it because they are, you know? Yep. Well, well we're in it. Yes, we are, and I'm glad that we are, and we're going to continue to be in it. So there, and speaking of which, next week, what are we going to talk about, Chuck? Oh, boy, okay. So I think next week we're going to round out this uh, series of articles that I've been commenting on from Toxic Legacy. And uh, the headline for this one, which was uh, in the Wednesday edition on October 5th, is The Mob Cleaned Up. 
you know, I don't know if people have picked up on it yet, but each one of these last three episodes and the, the one next week that we'll do is basically hinged on a four-day series, uh, right. I guess, that Jan and his team put together. It started on Sunday, then Monday, and today we talked about the Tuesday. Actually, it was a five-part series. I only reference a little bit of the final one, but okay, th- it took them a year to do all of this amazing... Re- now, you know, just, just as a side note... That was the that was the Bergen record. That was a newspaper that afforded the salaries of a number of writers, uh, of a whole team of people, yeah. and and of course the photojournalist uh, Tom Franklin as well. But they afforded those salaries for those people to work on this thing for the better part of a year. And wh- this is this is the loss we experience when we don't have local newspapers. And and social media is by no means a replacement for good, hard local journalism, good investigative reporting. It's a puppet show on social media when, when there is the pretense of investigative reporting or of, uh, honest reporting. It's it's not real. This yeah. is this is the loss of when we don't have local media. Yeah, that was the Borg family, Malcolm Borg and his yep. uh, and the family. They they were the Bergen record. And uh, I guess when they went, and I think it got sold to the uh, to the journal, didn't it, or something like? That? It's a conglomerate. It's all part of the big Gannett thing, and yeah, Gannett Westchester, right? Gannett, yeah, that thing, and um, and it's it's bloody boring, you know, and it's yeah. it's mushmash, and uh, occasionally something good comes out of it, but it's it's rare. This this series was phenomenal, and they had a uh, a website, a Toxic Legacy website that was kept up. And you could go there and see the video interviews of a lot of these people we're talking about in these stories. And you could see maps and photographs and you could see updates. It was it was a great website. And of course, as soon as the paper sold, they took the website down. And it was a wonderful tool for learning. We used it at the college every term in the sustainability courses. This is the value of local reporting, of local yep. news. And uh, this is what we what we lose when, when that goes away. Another unintended consequence, I suppose, of the internet and social media. Boy, what a loss. Yep. All right. Well, we will see you next week uh, for the fourth and I think the last in this particular series on The Toxic Legacy. Sure. Thanks again, Doc. We appreciate it, and we'll see you all next week. See you next week. Now for a word from our favorite sponsor, the Montgomery Book Exchange, your hometown used bookstore. Now at our new location at 84 Clinton Street in the heart of the Montgomery, New York Business District. Now, if you've been here before, you'll love your next visit even more because we proudly share our new space with Astoria Hudson, a clothing boutique run by our good friend, Katie. The Montgomery Book Exchange is a place where great books survive the test of time, where you can read a book enjoyed by someone a generation before you. You might even find notes in the margin giving you an insight as to what mattered the most to the previous reader. That's how Montgomery Book Exchange turns a great book into a shared experience. And the Montgomery Book Exchange is known throughout the Hudson Valley and beyond for innovations like their Facebook Live sales, for their intimate author readings and book signing experiences. 
How about their member-driven book club selections and book club talks? And did you know you can get store credits in the form of Montgomery Book Exchange book bucks when you bring your well-loved and gently used books in for a store credit? You can also find your Montgomery Book Exchange friends every first Friday evening at the monthly Handmade Montgomery event, which takes place from 6 to 8 p.m. This is a wonderful event featuring local artisans and hundreds of beautiful handmade items ranging from pottery to jewelry. For more information, just go to the MontgomeryBookExchange.com or call them at 845-764-1787. That's 845-764-1787. There's one more thing. They have a special location at 8 Factory Street dedicated to your young readers. They call it the Montgomery Book Exchange Children's Chapter, and it features a reading garden where your children can discover the joy of reading in a wonderful and stimulating learning environment. Also at this location, you'll find Miss Claire's Music Cupboard, featuring the award-winning research-based Kinder Music Program. The Montgomery Book Exchange Children's Chapter is open Wednesday through Saturday. Check the website for specific class times that match your child's age. You can also contact the Children's Chapter at 845-522-9652. TheMontgomeryBookExchange.com Your hometown used bookstore. You're going to love this place. Music